No, it's okay. Lights are already on. <coughs> um, Steve, where'd you go? There you are. Thank you for what you shared. Um, I was just standing back there thinking about Steve's words and sharing about the thief and, and realizing that we're all the thief. And that's, that's us. And anything else is an illusion. Anything else is, is, a, is a false lie that I think Satan propagates. And, and especially when we look at other Christians, we look at other believers and we say, well, I'm a thief, but they can't possibly be. You know, I even sit back in the back and look up at Steve and I think, just to embarrass you for saying, I, I don't know very many guys who I would think of as righteous as, as Steve. I know you're not, but just on the outside, <laughs> it looks really good. And, and so I could very easily sit back and, and in that evil place of comparison say, yeah, I'm the thief, but not Steve. It's a lie. It's an illusion. Satan uses that to, to pull us back, to, to get us into the place of thinking that, well, maybe everybody else, all these other people are, but I'm not, I just can't be, therefore I'm not even going to try. And it's a lie. We're all the thief. And we're all saved by one thing and one thing alone, and that is the grace of Jesus Christ. We started on Wednesday night talking about uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And if you, if you read through it from a flesh perspective, remember last week we talked about flesh and soul and spirit, that each one of us have those three components in us. And if you approach the Sermon on the Mount from a flesh perspective, it is impossible. You cannot keep it. You thought the 613 commandments of the Old Testament law were difficult? Try keeping the Sermon on the Mount. You can't do it. I mean, there are people who stand up and say, oh yes, the Sermon on the Mount is my religion. Right. You can't do it in the flesh. In the soul, where you try to work it out, where you think, if I do these things, this this is what will make me the religious person. Again, you cannot do it. The Sermon on the Mount can only be kept in the Spirit, by the Spirit, the power of God's Spirit in you, not by what you do. I hope that this will become more clear This morning um, and over the next couple of weeks as we stay in this place on the hillside with Jesus as He speaks. But we have got to get to that point in our lives where we understand fully, embrace fully what Steve was sharing at communion. That we are the thief and our salvation is not from anything that we do. Any more than our condemnation is against us for anything that we've done. If we place our faith in Jesus Christ, His grace saves us. When we read the Beatitudes, the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5 on Wednesday night, I'd like to read through them again, and we're going to stay there this morning. When Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on the mountain. And after He sat down, His disciples came to Him. He opened His mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle For they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, I pray that you will help us to embrace these words this morning and all of Jesus' teaching in that place of the Spirit. I'm asking you, Lord, to do what we cannot do and to work in our lives in a way that we can't work. Father, I'm not asking that we just sit back and do nothing, but but I'm praying, Father, our motivation would come from Your Holy Spirit. The heart-level change that Jesus calls for would be, Father, worked out by Your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray You will not allow us to land in that either in that place of self-righteousness or that place of self-condemnation because both are from the devil. Father, I ask that You will, by the power of Your Spirit, change our hearts and conform us into Your very image as Your children, sons and daughters. And I ask this morning as we look at these profound words that You will profoundly alter our spirits by Your own. As our teacher, Holy Spirit, and our guide, we ask you to do this. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been an interesting week. On the national and the international scene, of course, we've watched our whole banking system come close to collapse. That's a lot of fun. And uh, I don't know how many of you are stuffing dollar bills into your mattresses. But we also saw internationally another visit by Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, he came to the, to the United Nations this last week to spew his venomous hatred and his anti-American and anti-Semitic rhetoric. And so, since he did that, I thought we'd start out this morning uh, by sharing a report from our dear friends and missionaries, Brian and Ruth Young, regarding Christianity in Ahmadinejad's country. A major crackdown against Christian house churches is proceeding in Iran. But the Islamic government is finding it's incapable of reversing the rapid spread of Christianity in this nation. More and more Iranians are disillusioned with the Iranian revolution and are becoming more open to embrace Christianity, a faith that arrived already 500 years before Islam. As a result, the house church movement is now growing rapidly, but it's coming with a price. People are being arrested, harassed, and persecuted, and in some cases they are beaten severely. When was the last time you were beaten for walking out of a Bible study? What's going on in our world today among our brothers and sisters in Christ? I love this. Christian praise songs blast from the cassette player of Iranian taxicab. The driver is a Muslim convert to Christianity. Despite risk of arrest and possible death for apostasy, he's unafraid to share his faith. A cross hangs from his rearview window or rearview mirror. He keeps his Bible on the front seat next to a can of STP gas treatment. He shares the gospel with his passengers and gives them a Bible if they want one. That alone could lead to his arrest. Other Christians have even been martyred for sharing their faith with Muslims in Iran. While Ahmadinejad, I can't even say his name the right way now. While Mahmoud is desperately trying to halt church growth, his crackdown is actually having a more opposite effect because Christians are moving around more and are planting more house churches throughout the country. Iranian Christians are also praying fervently for Ahmadinejad to have a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. 
So this is what the news is not telling us, but this is what's going on inside the borders of Iran, and it's fantastic to me that these people are receiving Christ. It reminds me of the first 283 years of the church. For in that time, the church suffered intense, awful, horrific persecution and grew like wildfire. The statement was coined during that time that the blood of the martyrs is seed. That the church grows through the persecution. Back when we studied the the book of Revelation, we talked about this. How amazing is it that God chose to birth His church into absolute martyrdom, suffering, pain, beatings. A difficult time. Whereas I would have chosen to birth the church into a time of happiness and springtime, He chose to bring the church to life in a time of intense persecution. And why? Because it grows the church. See, the church doesn't grow when we're comfortable. When we sit back. You read through the book of Acts. What happens in the first few chapters? Fantastic things. The church has grown and birthed. And then, by about chapter 4 and 5, they're still in Jerusalem. Remember, Jesus told the apostles, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in Judea, and Samaria, and to all the ends of the earth. But they were still huddling there. And so the Lord allowed persecution to break out and the church was dispersed all over the place and then began to have radical and rapid growth. And that's what we're seeing going on in Iran today. I was reading this article and thinking about this question and that is what kind of joy leads a people to Jesus in spite of such persecution? Why would an Iranian taxicab driver risk hanging across from his rearview mirror knowing that he could be thrown in jail, beaten, or even killed for space. Why would you do something like that? Why keep the Bible right on the front seat by the STP gas treatment? Why, what, what kind of joy fills a person's heart to the point that they can live that kind of life? Back in 1990, Stephen Curtis Chapman wrote a song by that very title, one of my favorite songs he ever wrote, What Kind of Joy Is This? That Counts It a Blessing to Suffer. What kind of joy is this that gives the prisoner his song? What kind of joy could stare death in the face and see it as sweet victory? This is the joy of a soul that's forgiven and free. May I suggest something to you this morning? If you are lacking joy in your Christian life, I wonder if you realize that you've been set free. If you're finding it hard and difficult to be named a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus. If this is a stress and a strain and a struggle for you, I wonder if you realize how free you really are. Because it is for freedom that Christ set us free, Paul said. We are a free people. There is nobody on earth who is more free than a follower of Jesus Christ, whether you live in America or Iran. You are free. And it brings with it an incredible, amazing joy. Stephen Curtis Chapman wrote that song where he he said what kind of joy would stare death in the face and see it as sweet victory. This song was written long before the Islamic jihadists attempted to co-opt the phrase martyrdom. Where they call those who would strap suicide bombs to their belts and go in and blow themselves out, they're called jihadist martyrs. They're not martyrs, they're murderers. There's a huge difference. Because a martyr goes to his death in abject joy, whereas a murderer goes to his death in fear. You see, a suicide bomber dies out of fear, not out of joy. Fear that if I don't do something big in my life, blow myself up for Allah, I might not make it into heaven. Whereas a martyr for Jesus Christ, a true martyr, is someone who is so filled with the joy of the Lord. Bring it on. How can you hurt me? What can you do? Go ahead and kill my body. You cannot kill my spirit. 
Throughout church history, even in present times, there are those whose aspect of joy in the face of death and suffering is like that of the disciple Stephen, the first real martyr, that is, following Jesus. Stephen, when faced by infuriated enemies, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 7, verse 55, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. What a scene. He said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Well, the Jewish leaders cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him in one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul, who would later be Paul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. How like the death of Jesus was the death of Stephen who was so filled with the joy of the Lord. And I love this final sentence in in verse 60. Having said this, he fell asleep. It doesn't say having said this, he was knocked unconscious. Having said this, he was bludgeoned by a huge stone and killed. No, having said this, he fell asleep. As if Stephen, in the midst of the stoning, went to sleep like a baby, looking to Jesus in heaven. What kind of joy is this? It is the kind of joy that can only be found in one place, in the Spirit-led life of a citizen of the Kingdom of God. And if you are such a citizen, if you are someone who recognizes you've been saved by grace and this is not of yourself, if you know that, this is where that joy is discovered. As much as the Gospel according to Matthew is the Gospel of the Kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount is the King's Declaration of Independence. Some have said it's His constitution. No, it's not, because it doesn't bear laws. It is the declaration of independence. It is the picture, the portrait, of how a person who is a citizen of the kingdom can live. Not by our power, but by His. The Sermon on the Mount, by the way, picks up where the Gospel leaves off. The Sermon on the Mount is not the Gospel. For those who say, as many do, especially in more liberal Christianity, all I really need is the Sermon on the Mount, there's a problem with that. The Sermon on the Mount does not declare the Gospel, which is what saves you. The Sermon on the Mount declares what you look like after you've been saved. It's a different thing. Jesus began His public ministry calling out, Repent, for the Kingdom of Heaven is at hand. Repent! He declared the Gospel. There is good news. Turn around. The Kingdom's coming. Come to Me. It's time. But when he goes up on that hillside, there above the glimmering waters of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus begins to share something radical, revolutionary, and amazing. Far greater, it's the next step, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus describes the joyful journey of a disciple led by his Spirit, the journey of the lives of the disciple citizens of the kingdom. And he declares in his opening statement, often called the Beatitudes, an overview of that journey, the larger picture. He describes the process of heart change that happens in every disciple's life. These are not, by the way, and I'll say this again, this is not a list of different types of disciples. Oh, he's a poor in spirit person. Oh, he's a meek person. Oh, she, she's a merciful person. No, that's not, this is not like the spiritual gifts. The Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes are every person. The question is, where are you? On the list. Where, where do you fall? What's Jesus doing at the time? In this opening statement, Jesus describes the process 
of heart change. Supernaturally grown and nurtured in someone who's given their life to Jesus. Oswald Chambers said on uh, Thursday, I think it was, September 25th? I think that was Thursday. He said, The Sermon on the Mount is not an ideal. It is a statement of what will happen in me when Jesus Christ has altered my disposition and put in a disposition like His own. Jesus Christ is the only one who can fulfill the Sermon on the Mount. If we are to be disciples of Jesus, we must be made disciples supernaturally. Not naturally. It's not going to happen on your power. So as we get into the Beatitudes this morning, take note. It's not a list to choose from. It's not eight types of people who, who know or, or who realize how they're blessed. The Beatitudes are a description of what the Spirit does in our lives once we've given ourselves over to His absolute authority. Again, it's the Lord alone who does this work in our hearts. Which is why down in verses 13 through 16, he starts describing the people as salt and light. You are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. I hear that and I say, how's that? (laughs) Because he's doing something supernatural that I can't even control. For a visual, it's almost like giving your life to Jesus and suddenly you start to glow. And people are looking at you going, when the lights are off, I still see this guy. What's going on? And that's the graphic picture. And you're looking at yourself going, I have no idea why I'm glowing here. How can I be the light of the world? Especially in light of what goes on in my heart. You're the light. You're the salt because of what Jesus is doing. Which is far beyond anything that you can do. And it all starts with one word. Blessed. Verse 3, blessed. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, verse 2, saying, blessed. It's the Greek word makarios. Makarios, translated blessed. The Latin phrase there used is beatus, which is where we get beatitudes. It's from the Latin word for blessed. It's also where we get our word beautiful, which is, I think, a good connection. To be blessed is to be beautiful. It's also compared to the Hebrew word esher. The Hebrew word esher, Isaiah 30, verse 18, tells us the Lord longs to be gracious to you. And therefore He waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for Him. But you need to understand something. There's been a bad translation of this word in in many, especially of the lighter translations. Some would translate the word happy. It's not happy. Worse, some translations actually say lucky. Where does that come in? Coincidentally lucky is someone who's like this. No. Even happy falls short of the mark because blessedness is not a feeling. It is not a feeling to be blessed as Jesus describes it in this list. The blessedness of the servant of Jesus Christ described here is not subjective as in feelings based. It's objective. It's not how you feel. It's how you're being made. To be. It's it's your very incarnation. It's what Jesus is doing in you. A citizen of the kingdom can be in the midst of stoning and be blessed. A citizen of the kingdom can be beaten and whipped and be blessed. A citizen of the kingdom can be diagnosed with inoperable cancer or experience an intense personal loss or be in the midst of tragedy and still be blessed. You may not be happy, but you're blessed. And there's a huge difference. Circumstance has nothing to do with this kind of joy. This kind of joy is what allows a citizen of the kingdom 
to face martyrdom, to hang across from his rearview mirror, to act in such a way that there's just so much going on internally that God is doing. The external circumstances have no bearing. This is what Paul meant when he said, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am, Philippians 4.11. He says, I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Why, Paul? Because I'm blessed. Because I know I'm blessed. Not in material things. I am just a blessed citizen of the kingdom of God. As we said Wednesday night, I have everything. I have it all. What do I have to worry about? We're not blessed in terms of material things or company positions or neighborhood notoriety. In Christ, we have a spiritual blessedness that cannot be plumbed by the natural man or the soul man. That allows us to live in such a way that regardless of life around us, we know we're blessed. We have a deep joy. So let's listen as Jesus describes this disposition of unexplainable joy. Verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit... For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that's right where the journey begins. It must start there. Only the saved sinner is poor in spirit before God. The thief. Poor in spirit. And I recognize something again. And as Steve was sharing earlier, that that thief in Matthew is mocking Jesus. Both thieves are mocking Jesus. Something happens on the cross that transforms that thief's life To where Luke describes it, I believe it's in Luke, possibly John, where Luke describes suddenly this same thief who we know now because of Matthew was mocking Jesus early on the cross, later on the cross, within a few hours, is poor in spirit. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He finally gets broken. Only a repentant heart recognizes that they are spiritually bankrupt. Have you ever been there? Do you know the place of spiritual bankruptcy? Knowing that you have nothing to bring to the table. You have nothing you can offer God. That is spiritual poverty. And it is the primary first step of the journey. It's where it all begins. This heart change cannot happen without us being in that place of spiritual poverty. As long as there's still me in there, saying, i still got 50 bucks in my spiritual savings account. I'm holding off the work of the Father until I recognize I've got nothing to give. Paul understood this as well as anyone can. This is the man who, as we saw earlier, stood approving the stoning of Stephen. He's the man who persecuted the early church with a vitriolic rage. And he's the one in 1 Timothy verse 12 who wrote to his young apprentice, His young pastoral disciple, he said, I thank Jesus Christ our Lord who has strengthened me because He considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more abundant with the faith and the love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost. The King James says, I'm the chief. (laughs) I am big chief sinner man, is how Paul describes himself. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost sinner, 
Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example of those who would believe in Him for eternal life. Like so many of us, Paul was in a place where he thought, I'm rich. I've got it together. I'm righteous. I'm a Pharisee among Pharisees, trained at the feet of Gamaliel. I am a Jew among Jews until he saw his spiritual poverty. And later he would describe himself and other servants of God in 2 Corinthians 6.10 this way, we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. How's that? Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Poor yet making rich. As having nothing yet possessing all things. And notice, the blessedness of the poor in spirit is theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They're poor but they have it all. Because to have the kingdom of heaven is to have more than anybody can possibly imagine having. The riches of all eternity, right there. And so when you come to the Lord in your spiritual poverty, recognize you get the kingdom. That's the response. And you can't get the kingdom any other way. Jesus, in speaking to the church at Laodicea, Revelation chapter 3, Remember, this is a church. These are people who are supposed to have given their lives to Him. Jesus says, I will spit you out of My mouth. Because you say, I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. It's a facade, gang. Both physically and spiritually, wealth in this world is a facade. It's a lie. It does not bring the joy we all think it's going to bring. You say, I'm rich. I've become wealthy. I have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Well, the way into the kingdom begins with recognizing our abject need. The truth that we have nothing in and of ourselves. And when you get to that place of being poor in spirit before Jesus, you begin to mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, verse 4. For they shall be comforted. That's got to be one of the most ironic statements in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn. That's why the happy word doesn't work. Happy are those who mourn. No, they're not. There's nothing happy about mourning. But there's a blessedness there. Who could say such a thing but Jesus alone? Clearly, He's talking about something far more profound than circumstantial happiness. And mourning is what follows immediately on the heels of poverty as sorrowful recognition that I have no spiritual assets, nothing to bring to the table outside of Jesus Christ. I think of Peter. Peter, in Luke chapter 5, when he finally began to recognize there was something powerfully different about this man Jesus. They have the miraculous catch of fish. They come back to the shore. Do you remember the story? And everybody's shouting, this is fantastic, look at the miracle, all these fish. And Peter is on the ground before Jesus saying, go away from me, I am a sinner. But he still didn't quite get it. It would take all the way to the end of the Gospel. Matthew 26.74 where Peter began to curse and swear I don't know the man and immediately a rooster began to crow. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said before a rooster crows you will deny me three times and Peter went out and wept bitterly poor in spirit and mourning. That's where Peter got it. That's where finally Peter understood I've got nothing for the Lord. I think of the woman who came bursting into Simon the Pharisee's house, Luke chapter 7, verse 38. She stumbles and falls down onto the ground before Jesus. And the Bible tells us, standing behind Him at His feet, weeping, she began to wet His feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing His feet and anointing them with the perfume. Awkward! 
I mean, if you can imagine that scene, they're sitting down to a lovely dinner in the house of the Pharisee. And here comes this sinful woman. And the Pharisee knows immediately she's a sinful woman. Why? We're not sure. (laughs) But he knows this is a woman who was in the place of spiritual poverty. She is mourning over it. But don't miss this. When we get to that place, the place of mourning, God does not leave us there. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And so Jesus restored Peter on that bright Galilee morning. And so Jesus said to the woman who's weeping at his feet, You are forgiven. Because those who mourn will be comforted. His tenderness is such that he must comfort us. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Spiritual poverty leaning to mourning. And verse 5, blessed are the gentle. Blessed are the gentle. Gentleness is the third of the Beatitudes. The Greek word here is praus, and praus is also translated meek. But it's not meek as in wimpy or mealy-mouthed or just, you know, a little guy trying to get by. It's meek in terms of a deep gentleness. The spiritually impoverished person comes out of mourning and into meekness. He or she approaches the Lord, hat in hand, ready to say, Lord, whatever you want. Lord, whatever you will for my life. Thy will be done, not mine. Meekness. Gentleness. Meekness is the opposite of the world's admiration of ambition. The world says, do great things. Make a name for yourself. I was talking to Cheryl yesterday as we were on a little hike in the woods where we got lost, but that's another story for another sermon. And we were talking about this on on Facebook, which I've been kind of doing, you know, I started out doing it for Hannah, and now I I kind of enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. Do it with with spiritual wisdom. But I'm on Facebook, and I'm, I'm talking back and forth with a friend of mine named Rick Arroyo. I haven't talked to Rick since high school. Rick was on the drum line with me in marching band our freshman and sophomore year, and we just maintained a, a friendship through high school and have several just hilarious memories. And we're typing back and forth and just talking about some of these things that we haven't thought of in years and, and laughing together. But I went to Rick's page, and I saw what he's doing right now. Rick Arroyo and the Latin Jazz Ensemble are one of the most celebrated local bands in Las Vegas. He's got CDs out. He's got DVDs out. You know what? I beat him out of the drumming chair in our jazz ensemble our freshman and sophomore year. <laughs> and he had music in him, but he just, you know, he wasn't, well, it wasn't quite that good. All of a sudden here, I'm looking at this, and it was a dream of mine in high school to do what he's doing right now. He's got videos on YouTube. I went to YouTube and I watched Rick play him like, he's unbelievable. He's an amazing musician. He has done what he set out to do. And I started thinking, what have I done? You know, by comparison. It's never a good place to go. And as we thought about this and and kind of talked it through, I realized, you know, we have this, this sense that we've got to achieve these great things in the world. But the sad thing is, the moment we get to that place of achievement, someone else has achieved more. 
And it's just the way it is. But the Lord doesn't say, blessed are the ambitious, blessed are the assertive, blessed are those who conquer their goals. But what the Lord says is, blessed are the gentle. Blessed are the meek. Jesus is praus in every sense of the word. Jesus wasn't ambitious. Had Jesus been ambitious, it would have all been over on the pinnacle of the temple that we talked about last week. If Jesus had been ambitious when Satan said, throw yourself off the temple, do something big, he would have. But Jesus is praus. Jesus is meek. Jesus is the perfect example. In fact, in the only personal description he makes of himself in the entire gospel message, Matthew 11.29, he says, I am meek and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Which, by the way, is why the Spirit of Jesus Christ alone can produce praus in us. Gentleness, meekness, His Spirit at work. Which is why also I think meekness is one of the fruit of the Spirit. It's number eight on the list. Because the Spirit produces meekness, gentleness in us. So how is it that the meek inherit the earth? Honestly, I think that this is a literal prophecy. I don't think it's for right now because the meek don't inherit the earth, not in this world. The meek tend to get trampled. The meek tend to get overseen, tend to get run over on the road to ambition and and power in our world. But in the coming kingdom, well, Psalm 37.11 says, the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. This is a prophetic promise. It's coming, gang. You develop this meekness, well not you, the Spirit develops this meekness in you and you will inherit the earth. You will be one of those who are in the kingdom ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ. Revelation 5.10 tells us you have made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. Literally, the meek shall inherit the earth. Verse 6 says then going on, We've got the poor in spirit who mourn, who become gentle or meek. And then blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That's the fourth beatitude, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Look at it this way. When a baby is born, they bring nothing into the world. They are truly in poverty. They've got nothing. Nothing to offer. All they really can produce are messes. (laughs) So that is so much like us when we come to Christ. But then... This child, this baby, empties his or her lungs in mourning, begins to cry out. But then as this child gets his or her bearings, he begins, she begins to look around with wide-eyed curiosity. And there is something truly meek about a child in that position. But moms, you know this, the next thing on the agenda, dinner time. Hunger and thirst. And that crying of coming out of the womb and into this cold and bright lit room with all these people with masks on that are frightening and all the, you know, the mourning that goes on shifts into a cry of hunger and that's where we are as we progress in our journey with Jesus. Hungering and thirsting after righteousness. The clear evidence of a life that is born of the Spirit of God is a hunger and a thirsting, a deep desire to be fed by the Lord. And how does the Lord respond to this desire? He satisfies. Psalm 34, verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. And so we become, in this process, we are like the newborn infant nestling at his mother's breast. This is where the disciple of the Lord is craving after more of His righteousness. Now you might say, Rick, that's a little graphic for a Sunday morning. We have kids in here. 
You use the B word. I can't believe you actually said it. Well, I'm not the one who said it first or who made that comparison. See, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 66, verse 12 said, You will be nursed and you will be carried on the hip and fondled on the knees as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you and you will be comforted in Jerusalem. The Lord compares His comfort, His satisfaction of our hunger, He compares it to a mother nursing her child. That's what the Lord does with us. Isn't it interesting that Peter says, long for pure spiritual milk of the Word. Isn't it interesting that Paul says, you start out with milk. Because we are like that as we come to the Lord. Number 7, verse 7. Blessed then are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Something that's interesting is the Lord feeds your hunger and thirst for righteousness. If you're really being fed by the Lord, you're not becoming more full of righteousness. You're becoming more and more merciful. You begin to look at other people in a different way. Not as in comparing them to yourself going, well, I've been a Christian for about five years now and I don't know what his problem is, but he's nothing like me. That's not the attitude that is produced by the Spirit of God. I've said before, the most mature Christian is the one who is the most merciful to the most immature Christian. In fact, he's the one or she's the one who's the most merciful to the person who doesn't know Jesus at all. The more mature we are in our faith, the more we look to other people to say, how can I help you? How can I walk alongside you in your faith journey? As opposed to judging where they are in comparison to where we are. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, check your pulse. How are you doing so far? If you go down this list, I was thinking about this. I was okay with spiritual poverty and mourning and meekness and even a little bit of hunger, but, but merciful. I'm never merciful when I watch the news. I was watching the debate the other night. I was unmerciful as I was watching, and I won't say which candidate, but everything out of a particular candidate's mouth, I was going, oh, come on, what, do you hear what they're saying here? This is a complete, absolute lie, come on. Mercy's tough, gang. <laughs> this is the place where I start to get uncomfortable. But don't get confused here. Remember, I don't attain God's mercy by being merciful. No, His mercy causes me to be merciful. We get it backwards. Okay, I've got to be more merciful so that I can get some mercy. No. The more I understand His mercy to me, the more I am naturally going to be, supernaturally going to be merciful to others. Titus 3.4 Paul says, When the kindness of our God and Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You've received mercy. Therefore, you can be merciful. As Jesus said in Luke 6.36, Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. This is not talking about having a clean heart. Remember, David wrote, Created me a clean heart, O God. We sing that song. Blessed are the pure in heart speaks of something different. This purity here describes a single-mindedness. It describes Jesus as He set His sights on Jerusalem and from that day forward was going to the cross. 
It describes someone who accepts that they have not a bunch of purposes, but one single purpose in God in this life. My sole reason for existence is to glorify Jesus above all other things, including myself. That's why we're here. We're here to glorify Him. Which is why I believe the pure in heart shall see God. Because they're looking at Jesus. Fix your eyes, Paul says, on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The pure in heart who are single-minded following after Jesus Christ will see God because they are looking at Him. Eyes right on the goal. And the more we look at Him, the more we become like Him. In fact, John wrote in 1 John 3, 2 that we know when He appears we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. Well, the single-minded, pure in heart leads right into the next character trait, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. It's rare in Scripture to see the word hate associated with God. We like to think of God as being a God of love, and He is. We like to feel like He is love innately, intrinsically. But there are things God hates. And at the top of the list is the opposite of peacemakers. It's those who would bring about strife and division. Proverbs 6.16 tells us there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to Him. That's Hebrew language for watch out for number seven because God hates it more than all the rest. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and number seven, here's the big one, what God hates more than anything else, one who spreads strife among brothers. Let me tell you something. If you go about in a church fellowship undermining and trying to spread strife, you are doing the very thing God hates the most. And that's an area where I would say, you better be careful. I better be careful. If my words, if my behavior, if my action is stirring up dissension, I'm in the place of God's hatred. The peacemaker is different. The peacemaker is a son or a daughter of God. Why are peacemakers called sons of God? Because they look like Dad. Because their characteristics look like the characteristics of the Father. Because people look at you and say, you've got to be one of those followers of Jesus, don't you? And I just see it in the way that you are always making amends, always reconciling with people. And by the way, you don't make peace by holding up signs on street corners decrying the idiocy of people on the other side of the street. These are not the peacemakers. Peace never comes by division. Peace only and always comes through sacrifice. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 2.13, In Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He Himself is our peace. It's through sacrifice that peace comes. Peacemakers will be the sons of God. Because the Son of God was Himself the great peacemaker. Which brings us to the last and possibly most surprising of these characteristics of a citizen disciple of the kingdom. Verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's interesting to me, like bookends on these traits, the poor in spirit gets the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, but now we get to the other end of it, the persecuted. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As if Jesus is saying this whole thing is encompassing a citizen of the kingdom. 
You begin poor in spirit, you receive the kingdom. You end persecuted, you receive the kingdom. It's all about the kingdom for us. These are kingdom characteristics. But this blessed state of the persecuted is possibly the most difficult to understand. And please note this, Jesus does not say blessed are the victims. Because we are not victims. We are not members of the woe is me club. That's not what's going on here. We are among those who keep their Bibles on the front seat right next to the can of STP gas treatment. Which is not a victim mentality. Not, oh, the world's against me. Oh, I'm going to be persecuted. Oh, I better be quiet. That's a victim. No. We are blessed to be persecuted. We are bold in the joy of the Lord that is in us, in our lives. We are those who would drive that taxi cab through the streets of, in, uh, of hatred with a joy indescribable. I want to meet this Iranian taxi cab driver because he expresses everything we're talking about. The blessedness of the persecuted. I mean, what? Has the Lord not done enough for us that we should complain and whine? We're not victims. We're persecuted sometimes. Verse 11, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Note this, don't miss this, because of me. That's where the blessing is. I think sometimes in the church we miss that. That we think because we're being persecuted at all, we're the good blessed people. Sometimes we're being persecuted again just because we're being stupid. You know? We do those dumb things make these silly stands and people get all on our case and it's not because of Jesus. Then we wonder why we're not feeling blessed. Well, the issue is the blessedness he's talking about, this kind of persecution is when you're persecuted because of Jesus. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of me. Indeed, Paul says, 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's, that's a guarantee. That's not, might be persecuted. It's if you truly desire to live by the Spirit, life altered as this picture we see in the Beatitudes, you will be persecuted. It is going to happen. People are going to say false things on account of Jesus about you. You will be insulted for it. You will find it difficult. So you can avoid this persecution. Just don't let on that you're a Christian. Hide the Bible under the seat. Keep it to yourself. And you can go through life and and not get this persecution. Don't pursue holiness. Avoid anything that might lead you to a more godly life in Christ Jesus and you'll be A-OK. Verse 12. Please hear the sarcasm in that. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Think about them. Hebrews 11.35 They were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. What kind of joy is this? It is the joy of a citizen of the kingdom. That deep, intrinsic, heart-level blessedness 
that transcends flesh and blood, that transcends soul and reason. It goes beyond the natural man, beyond the soul man. It is what you could call the painful, perfect process of the disciple of Christ. If you're new to Jesus, this is what you can expect. If you're not sure about who Jesus is, you're thinking about giving your life to Him, this is what you can expect. This is the process, the journey into which He invites us. And my friends, again I say, it is an impossibility for you or me to achieve. We can't do it. Chambers said the summing up of our Lord's teaching is that the relationship which He demands is an impossible one unless He has done a supernatural work in us. The attitudes... The entire Sermon on the Mount is a supernatural thing that His Spirit alone can achieve. And that's why, and listen to this, that's why we take it all back to Jesus. That's why it all is about Jesus. If you look back over this list, do you realize what Jesus has just done? In the Beatitudes, Jesus describes Himself. The Beatitudes are Jesus. Poor in spirit, Philippians 2.7 says he emptied himself. One who mourns, Isaiah 53.3 says he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Meek and gentle, Isaiah 42 verse 3 says a bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. Hunger and thirst? <laughs> who hungers and thirsts after righteousness like Jesus did? 1 John 2.1 tells us Jesus Christ is the righteous. We see that in his whole life. He's the merciful one. He's the pure in heart. He's obviously the peacemaker. And as for the persecuted, Hebrews 12.2 says, For the joy, for the joy set before Him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What kind of joy is this that could be someone described in these Beatitudes? It's His joy. This is the joy of Jesus that enters in, that gets into our very hearts. The joy set before Him. The joy that He would share with you and with me. A true joy, not not a happiness. If you look at our Declaration of Independence for America, the United States Declaration of Independence, it declares three inalienable rights for all people. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Let me ask you, how's that working out for you right now? How is the U.S. Constitution working out? The Declaration of Independence. Are we a free country? Well, I could argue and debate that one. Do we walk in this liberty that we were promised? Are we alive? Are we happy? I'm not just talking about those of us gathered here this morning. Draw back. Look at our nation. Is this a happy nation? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Jesus comes along, actually preceding it, and He gives His declaration of independence. A place where real joy can be found. A state of blessedness that is produced in us as we look to His great return. And what a joy that will be. So let me leave it with you. Do you desire to be joyful in Jesus Christ? Do you want to be in that place of being blessed? Which is not circumstantial. You've got to come to the Lord. 
I will say one more thing before we stop, and I, I need you to hear me on this. Um, this is not a process where we started, you know, some of us 30 years ago, poor in spirit, and have slowly worked ourselves up to persecute it. You at any given time will find yourself somewhere in this list. And there are times in your life, in my life, no matter how we may have walked this journey, where we find ourselves poor in spirit again. I believe the Lord Jesus will bring us back to the place of poor in spirit so that we will continue to empty ourselves over and over and over. Because we're in a process. And the end goal will not be felt or achieved until we either die in Christ or He calls us up to go home. Let's pray together. Jesus, this is an amazing, amazing declaration here. And we read it with with trembling, Lord, because we recognize how, how grand a thing it is that You state and declare. But Jesus, I just ask this morning that wherever we may be in our relationship with You, that You will intensify the supernatural work of Your Holy Spirit in our lives and in our hearts. Father, there are some here today who are poor in spirit, who are finding themselves impoverished, and feeling as though they've got nothing at all. In fact, Father, probably some who feel that they're at the end of their spiritual life, not able to go any further. And Lord, I pray that with Your gentleness and Your comfort, You will bring about mourning and repentance. Father, for each of us, I pray that You will keep repentance in our hearts, that we would be a people who consistently mourn over the fallen nature even as we rejoice over our spiritual blessedness. Father, You know Your people. Wherever we are, meet us there. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand up together.